yes. And I think that many of us who educate in forms of advanced sexuality like Tantra, like BDSM, uh, we don't caution people often enough, I don't think. Now, to be to be frank about it, if they had told me this could change your life, I would have said, hey, cool, let's go, um, because that's the kind of person I am. But I did not understand the potential consequences of what I was doing. My guest today is Janet W. Hardy, probably best known for being the co-author of The Ethical Slut, which has sold more than half a million copies to date. Janet spent the first three decades of her life believing that she was the only person in the world who got turned on by, the, by thinking about spanking. She wrote her first book, The Sexually Dominant Woman, to help create a world in which nobody else would ever be that clueless. Janet has traveled the world as a speaker and teacher on topics ranging from ethical multi-partner relationships to erotic spanking and beyond. Janet also spent a quarter of a century as editor-in-chief of Greenery Press, the firm she founded in 1992, which went on to publish dozens of books about alternative sexuality and relationships. While she has retired from publishing, she goes on writing, drawing, editing, speaking, and educating about sexuality. Her newest book, Notes of an Aging Pervert, is all about this current chapter in Janet's life as her body ages and she contemplates changes that that brings in her identity, her relationships, and the potential of her own mortality. You know, it's funny, and I don't even know, like we just sort of launched in this stuff, so I'll have to figure out, let's just level set. Thank you for joining Radical Soul. <laughs> okay. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. <laughs> um, you were talking about being uh, busy in retirement. I I remember um, I lived in Philly for a couple of years and went to Benjamin Franklin's house. And there was this timeline of his life. And there's this thing that always stood out to me. There was like a moment when he said that he he wanted to retire. He was attempting to retire from Congress and all the things. And then there was a project where they needed him and they pulled him back in and he worked for another 10, 15 years. Yeah. And I just, I always think about that, that like sort of the responsibility sometimes of like of being a purpose, being a purpose filled person, you yeah. know? Yep. I am. Um, I'm retired from being a publisher and that's huge for me because it means I don't have to worry about the stuff that I suck at like money and contracts and all of that. Somebody yeah. else handles that now. Um, but I don't think I'll ever retire, you know, barring, something horrible happening to my brain or my hands. I don't think I'll ever retire from being a, an author and educator because it's what I do. Mm. Um, I was talking to a friend who is also a writer and we agreed that we hate to write because writing is hard and it sucks. But the only thing we hate more is not writing. Yeah. So, you know, here we are. <laughs> totally. I get that. I, I feel like that's my answer for literally everything, you know, like anything that I really enjoy is something that I also very much hate. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, pe people like us, we want challenges and yeah. if it were easy, we wouldn't enjoy it anymore. So we just keep wading back in there hip deep and figuring out that we'll work it as we go. Right. <laughs> this interview is going to go all over the place. One of the things that I was thinking about in the context of this book was the idea of having a public body. And what I mean by that is like somebody like yourself that has 
probably not only been naked in front of more people than most people will in their life, but also like studied and had your body and your sexuality and very intimate experiences used as examples and writing fodder. And in a way, like your, your, your um, embodied self becomes a witness throughout your life. And that changes, I think, your experience of aging. It does. Um, my various sexual experiences um, and erotic experiences and what's the third category? Uh, extreme experiences, I guess, would be what I'm talking about. Uh, they have taught me a huge amount about my connection to my body and my connection to the slow but certain failure and death of my body. Um, and I'm really, really glad of that. I can't imagine what this time of my life would be like if, you know, I grew up in a very secular humanist family. Nobody in my family was, you know, into any kind of spirituality. And if I had stuck with that all these years, instead of following my whatever, uh, I can't imagine what being at this time of my life would be. Mm. There's a long story in the book about my father's chosen death, which mm -hmm. I'm sure you read. Yeah. And one of the hardest things for me about that was sitting with him before and not telling him what I believe I know about what happens once we're out of our bodies, because that was not fair to lay on him. You know, he had come to terms with his own experience and I wanted to tell him, you know, it's, it's not what you think it is. It's going to be something you can't begin to imagine, but it is going to be something. Uh, and that was, that was my desire speaking, not his. So I didn't. He did not feel like being lectured by his weird daughter at that point in his life. So I, I let it alone. But uh, but you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So talk about that, because I think that probably your understanding of what happens when you leave your body comes from some of the experiences that you talk about in the book, correct? Yes. Would you mind just um, I don't, giving, <laughs> it's hard to summarize that, but uh, giving a little context? Uh, yeah, well... Some of it started quite early, and that uh, I refer to that that sort of thing in both of my two previous memoirs. Um, there was a moment when I was driving with a friend who he was um, crippled by polio early in his life, and so, like many people with withered legs, he had this enormous Popeye upper body, and then nothing from the hips down, and. He was socially rather iffy. You know, these days we would say um, ASD or whatever. Um, but I liked him and, and he was just a lonely, lonely guy. And at some point during the car, during the car drive, he put his hand on my arm where it was resting on the gear shift knob. And I had this sort of zoom out of my body, this, mm. it, this rush of intensity that I had, that was being channeled through me from him. And it almost sent me off the road. And I'd never had an experience like that before. And this was back in my advertising days. This would have been mid 80s and long before I had gotten into BDSM in any serious way. Um, and at the time I thought, well, gee, that's odd. <laughs> but it went on to be sort of a signpost to where I would go after that, which were these 
extreme ways of connecting with the people I cared about using these various intense practices as the channel to let things flow. Um, and of course, the big one that I've written about several times, um, this book got closer to what I wanted to say about it than any of the previous ones have, but you know, I, I may still go on writing about it, who knows. But when da Dossie and I were working on our book, Radical Ecstasy, we took some Tantra classes. We took a fair number of Tantra classes. And in one of those, we were doing, it was late in the day after a day and a half of intense practice, Dossie and I had repaired for the last exercise. And she was, we were sitting in yab yum, which means you're kind of sitting in each other's laps. And we, our mouths came together and we started sharing breath, which, you know, that's a, a, a thing that Tantra people do, where one of you exhales into the other's mouth and the other of you inhales and you leave a little space on the side so that there's some oxygen in the process somehow. But as we did that, I had this extraordinary feeling rise up through my spine, up my body, and I lost control. I, I flopped over backwards and arched up with my head and my feet, the only things touching the ground, which I gather Tantra people call bow pose or yoga people. And Dossie had not seen what was going on soon enough. So she was riding me like a bronc. She hadn't had time to get off. Um, and I just started screaming and I couldn't stop screaming for what felt like a very long time. Dossie told me later, she thinks it was maybe two minutes, but it felt like an eternity. And it was terrifying because I didn't know how to stop. Um, and it turns out, how you stop is that your muscles just give out and you can't do it anymore. And you collapse in a little heap and start to cry, or at least that's how it ended for me. Cause I had been terrified. I thought I was going to have a stroke. I thought I was going to, you know, die somehow. Um, and I didn't. And I came back down. I did not do, I did not follow my instincts, which were to, leave that whole, leave Tantra alone, leave BDSM alone, leave sex alone while I sort of got my mojo back. Um, Cause we were working on a book deadline and that's my job is to meet my deadlines. So we went on practicing and playing and writing for several months after that, by the end of which I could no longer do anything that involved putting myself in my body instead of in my head. Because the minute I did, I would start to go back into an orgasmic state, which was, both frightening and embarrassing in many ways. Uh, you know, it doesn't feel good to lose control of your muscles. People think orgasms always feel good, but if you think about the other things that happen, that means your, your mean your muscles are contracting without your will. You've got you know labor pains and muscle cramps and heart attacks, um, and involuntary orgasms are not quite that painful, but they are not nice. They're not nice to have. Um, and that went on for years that any time I came back into my body, put my concentration back in my heart, instead of up here in my forebrain, I would start to fall back into that state and it didn't start to go away. You know, fast forward 10 years, we moved to Oregon, which I later realized one of the things they teach people who have had experiences like mine is to do things that are physical and grounding, um, rather than living up there in your, in the white light that emerges from the crown of your head or whatever they put, you know, Tantra people are odd <laughs> by my standards. Um, 
but they do say do physical things, do things that bring you in touch with your physical self. So we moved up here. Uh, and in hindsight, I think that was a really good decision. I raised chickens, I baked bread, I did all these sort of very physical, earth mothery things, which helped start me coming back down. And then I found out that here in Eugene, which is a town full of old hippies, uh, there was ecstatic dance a couple nights a week. So I started going to that and found that ecstatic dance for me is, it's a way to have an embodied spiritual practice where it's okay to pull the energy up, push it back down, play with it, and let it out when it's ready to come out. So I did that for a couple of years, once or twice a week. And now I feel like I'm not likely to lose control, except a couple of years ago, I was in London um, and I had dinner with a friend of mine who had written me when I first came out about this whole Kundalini experience and told me about his experiences. And he's this little engineering looking guy. He looks like Elmer Fudd, the last person in the world you would expect to be a major channel for these energies. But after having dinner with him, I went to the theater and had an orgasm during a standing ovation which it had been years since that. So I'm not totally in control yet. And being with him had brought it back up strongly enough that I lost it again. But since then, it hasn't recurred. I could still do it as we sit here. Uh, I don't want to, because it usually takes me a while to come back from one of those. But I don't have them involuntarily, aside from that one experience in London anymore. Thank goodness. You know, I... I, and yours is not the only, actually, yours isn't even the only um, story about, you know, what some people refer to as the Kundalini awakening yeah. being really disturbing or, you know, um, <laughs> not this joyful, blissful, incredibly positive thing that <laughs> some people make it out to be. And the thing that I, it always reminds me of is the idea of healing being, um, there being a responsibility or a burden to, to healing that anything, I guess, that we think of as just being this ultimate goal does not mean that it's, it doesn't have weight or consequences. Yes. Yes. And I think that many of us who educate in forms of advanced sexuality, like Tantra, like BDSM, mm -hmm. uh, we don't caution people often mm -hmm. enough, I don't think. Now, to be to be frank about it, if they had told me this could change your life, I would have said, hey, cool, let's go. Right, um, right, because right. that's the kind of person I am. Um, but I did not understand um, the potential consequences of what I was doing. Uh, if I had, I probably would have done it anyway, because I'm I talk in the book about being a person that's always been in a rush to move to the next thing. I am that still. But it would have been nice to have a warning so at least I didn't feel blindsided the way I did. But because it was sort of an entry level group, I don't think it ever occurred to the instructor that mm -hmm. might come up. And I also suspect, although I don't know, that she doesn't actually know too much about this because a lot of instructors do not. Yeah. Um, they, they get far enough along in their practice to have the fun shiny part where you have lovely little orgasms with the people you care about, but they don't get to the point where it just rises up and knocks you over like a huge wave. Mm. Playing in the ocean is fun until the huge wave comes and then it gets less fun kind of rapidly. <laughs> well, and it's, you're dealing with, 
you're not just dealing with your your physical body, but your energetic body, right? And it's the yeah. it's the combination of them that's so powerful. Yeah, and being, as I say, someone who was raised in a very secular environment, even talking about energetic body is uncomfortable for me. Mm. But there have to, I, I think, it's something that most people understand, but don't have words for, because our language particularly the English language, because it comes from a very brain-forward, Eurocentric point of view. Most people just don't don't know how to talk about it. Since I first wrote about the Kundalini thing, which was in Salon in, I think, 2008, it's been a long time. I've heard from a lot of people who have had comparable experiences doing BDSM, doing prayer. um, I talked to one man the other night at a at my book party, who had grown up in an evangelistic, uh, um, what's the other word they use? Charismatic mm-hmm. uh, cult. And that included all that dancing together, speaking in tongues, ecstatic belief. Um, and it's the same thing. You watch people doing it, and it will look very much like the last good dungeon you were in, with people making sounds and moving their bodies in spasmodic ways and all that. And one of his reasons to love my writing is that it taught him another way to get back to that place that he didn't have to believe in things that he doesn't believe in anymore. So people have these experiences in all kinds of ways and they don't know what to expect or what to talk about. Um, the, The woman who taught me the phrase Kundalini awakening is a woman named Isis Lior, who's been traveling around the world uh, having these amazing experiences. You know, she's younger than I am and single and no reason why she shouldn't. Um, But when she had her first one, she was like 17 and she couldn't stand on her feet for several days afterwards. She had to crawl to get to the bathroom. Wow. Who warns you about shit like that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is there any... Hi, dog. Besides what you said, like, is there any other part of that warning that you would like to distribute? I mean, you've written about it, so like people experience it, but what is your warning? Well, I think I was talking with some friends about this the other day. I think the upside to specifically BDSM and to the very low bar to entry that we have these days, you know, you can Mm -hmm. click seven keys on your keyboard and find everything you want about BDSM. I think people don't respect it because it's so easy to find. The good side of that is that nobody has to go through what I went through, which is a decade of thinking I was the only person in the world that got turned on thinking about spanking. That doesn't have to happen anymore. And good, it shouldn't. But the bad side is it can change your life. It can make serious long-term changes in the way you move through the world, the way you relate to people. And Mm -hmm. For those for whom it's the flavor of the week, you know, this is cool, let's try this, uh, they never hear that, mm-hmm. and they should. That, I, that segues into an, a question that <laughs> I've been trying to figure out how, to, how exactly to articulate. When it comes to accepting or embracing an alternative lifestyle or alternative communities and, and aging, for many of us who have had our lives changed by embracing alternative whatever, mm-hmm. um, we what happens, I think, for so many of us is that there's these misconceptions, or not, I'm sorry, not misconceptions, there's stereotypes about 
what life should be like, what desire should be like, what a relationship should be like. They get shattered when we figure out that there's an alternative. But then we go into just another level of shoulds and et cetera. For instance, like my introduction to BDSM, I thought that it had to be about pain. Ah. And of course, it doesn't have to be about pain. And the beauty of it for me is is the framework that it establishes that allows me to explore my inner world with somebody else. Or, I mean, even like queer sex for me is a lot easier in scenes than it is when it's just loosey goosey, you know? Me too. Me too. I'm, I've never been a big fan of vanilla sex of any kind. <laughs> and with women, I've never found my turn on in vanilla sex. So yeah, if, if, if I, I, I am primarily a pain player. That's what brought me there. Mm-hmm. Um, and knowing that I can make people come by hurting them is like the best thing in the world to me. And that I can come from being hurt is the second best thing in the world to me. Um, (laughs) So yeah, you, you just, if you're doing it playfully, you're missing a huge amount of what it has to offer and you're running risks. But that to me, I think what I've realized through aging or getting, getting older in the scene or, you know, is that, and I, I've noticed an, a number of my friends going through the same thing where as we've getting, we're getting older, as our, our relationships are changing, our interests are changing, our bodies are changing. There's almost just this, there's a blank slate again. When, yeah. when somebody asked me what I'm into, I have no idea because the things that I was into I was into in my thirties when I had my 30 year old body, but now that I'm Indeed. in my forties, it's like, well, this isn't, I, I don't want to go there anymore for whatever reason, you know? Um, and so I, I think my question to you is like, as, as we've had these aha moments for ourselves, but they became these foundations to who we are, what we desire, what our values are when they no longer hold what do we do? Like what, how do you age as an alternative person when, you know, when those things shift? That I, I, that a question I mull over a lot is how do I know I am still a BDSM person when mm-hmm. I'm not doing BDSM anymore? And my fantasies are still pain oriented and kinky, but they're not nearly as urgent a call as they were when I was younger. Uh, you know, my, my libido is just not one, what it once was. And mm. there are ways I could fix that. I've done light doses of testosterone in, in the past and I could do so again. But because my primary partner here is also not interested in going back into a sexual mode, and believe me, his his life as a sexual person is at least as long and tangled and fabulous as mine. Mm. And it just feels like a, a journey that's been finished. Mm. So it's it's still a core structure of the way I think. I think like a BDSMer, mm. um, and I think that will be true until the day I die. But in terms of having to actually go do BDSM, I'm not feeling the I'm not feeling the, the desire very strongly. There's a few people in the world that, if they wanted to, I would for sure, because I love them and I want to do good things with them. But other than that, you know, probably not. 
I do the occasional, you know, spanking booth as a fundraiser for a good cause. And that's fun, but it it's not touching my heart. It's just having fun with people I'll never see again. Yeah. So on the other hand, I mentioned briefly in the book a woman that I knew casually in the scene in San Francisco uh, back See, I moved up here in 2005. A couple of years before then, I ran into her at Folsom Street. She was still a working pro-dom as she was approaching 80. I recently re-encountered her on Facebook. She's now 96. And a mutual friend told me she still has a 60-year-old boyfriend who comes over and she takes care of him and he takes care of her, which is just enough to make me happy forever to hear oh. that she is still out there being herself in spite of her age. That is one of the questions I had. There's a lot of ageism and accessibility issues, especially in the King community, also in the poly community, you know, various alternative communities. And maybe in part because of that, we don't tend to see as many people above a certain age at events, at parties, at dungeons, with a few lovely exceptions. But I'm curious, like, you have such a wide network of people that you've known for so long and for older Kingsters, do you find that community matters less? Does community change? Does public community matter less? Like, you know. I think uh, many of us have found our groove, you know, with a partner or with a, a polycule or whatnot. And I think one of the reasons people seek out community is to find partners. And if you're not looking mm -hmm. for partners, there isn't all that much reason to dive back into that. Many of us have gotten to a certain age and the libido has just said, okay, thank you. We've, we're done for a while now. And sometimes we go back to it and sometimes we don't. And that's fine too. And I do think the same sex communities have a lot more support for their elders than the mm -hmm. hetero communities. Older women are not generally a hot commodity in, uh, particularly older women bottoms, not a hot commodity in the scene. And I, a friend of mine who is another by poly switch and who is male bodied and male identified says if he wants to top, he can have partners for the rest of his life. Nobody mm -hmm. cares how old a top is. In fact, you know, mm -hmm. having a daddy is kind of a thing when he wants to bottom, it can be very difficult to find people who want to do that with him. And I think some of it might be some concern about harming the aging body, but also, mm -hmm. you know, when you fantasize, you don't usually fantasize about an older person. Yeah, I mean, I do, but I'm weird. A lot of people don't. <laughs> yeah, I can think of some lovely people in the scene that do, who really change my... Um, I, I'll say that I, I feel like the kink and queer communities tend to look at age differently than mainstream hetero, which is really nice. Like, yes, question, it is. What, what is consent? What is agency? And how do we factor it in? Yeah, yeah. that is one thing about playing with older people is you can be a lot more sure that we know what we're doing, that we're taking responsibility for our own part in whatever happens. Um, whereas newbies and young people, it's a concern. If I were still active in the scene, I don't think I would play yeah. with strangers anymore at this point, because as we work out mm. what we believe about consent, um, it is way too difficult to be blamed for something that's gone wrong because we couldn't read the mind of the person we're playing with. Um, and I think that'll straighten itself out eventually, right. but it's too inflamed and too dangerous right now with strangers. I know too many really mm. good players who have been harmed by what's going on right now. 
And, you know, Dossie calls it the, the terrible twos, the stage that all social movements go through in the beginning when they veer out into extremes um, in search of what the center is. And we're seeing the same thing in gender. And, we're, you know, it's what happens when a new idea comes on and catches and people are exploring how far it needs to go and where it uh, where the boundaries lie. And it eventually settles down, you know, whether it's counterculture stuff from the 70s, 60s and 70s, or whether it's our looks at gender now or our looks at consent now. It will straighten itself out. But in the meantime, it's a little difficult to navigate. Interesting. That's hopeful. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Totally different direction. You've talked. You talked a lot in the book about your changing desire, your changing sense of self, your changing relationship with your body. I'm curious about your relationship with shame and how it's changed. It's pretty hard to for me to feel ashamed of anything anymore. There are things I wish I hadn't done. Surprisingly few. Because even the things that came out awful, I learned from. They're, you know, things I said to people before I got control of my mouth that I wish I hadn't said, things like that. But in terms of things I genuinely feel ashamed of, there are not many. Certainly nothing I have done sexually do I feel were shameful. There were mistakes I made because I didn't know any better particularly back before I had access to, you know, this is long before the internet. And when I was living in a city that had no BDSM community, I just didn't know. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was trying to figure out how to do this off of a couple of old copies of Penthouse Variations, which you probably don't remember. It was a little tabloid magazine. It's a spinoff from Penthouse Forum, except it was kinky. It was not a good thing to learn from. Let's just put it that way. And there was a book that I found at my local tower books in Sacramento called SM, The Last Taboo, which was published out of England, Mm. which was part of, it confirmed my existing belief that what SM meant was spanking because it was English. (laughs) And once I started finding partners, I got disabused of that very quickly, but that was what I thought back in the beginning because how did I know? Right. And, you know, I, I, the only serious injury I think I've ever caused in a scene was an anal fissure because I had read a scene in one of the beauty books that was someone stuffing something into someone's ass without prepping it or lubing it. How was I to know? I mean, you know, I yep. was a early 30s wife and mom in Sacramento, California, with no access to general knowledge. I think the bookstore had the Lesbian SM Safety Manual and the Leatherman's Handbook, which is what was out back then. But I didn't buy them because at the time I considered myself heterosexual. Mm-hmm. They would have told me, but I right, didn't know. Right, right. I, I love that. And I think, so the person that's written now, do you consider this a memoir? Or do you consider it a book of essays? My publisher considers it a book of essays, and I don't think okay. he's wrong. I, I tend to write in shorter forms. Uh, if you look at the books I've done by myself, I don't think any of them is more than 40,000 words, and most of them are, are shorter Got than it. that. Um, my, my writing tends to be pretty dense, and so it can get a little overwhelming in larger quantities. Right. When I'm working with Dossie, it frees up a bit, but I'm someone who goes over my writing over and over and over and over and over again to make sure it's tight and exact. And what that means is every time I go over it, it shrinks. 
So okay. there it is. That's what I am. So, so yeah, I think this is a series well, of listen, the person that goes over and over and over their life in such um, self-reflective way, that's going to be, that's going to be a person that has worked through things that cause shame. Right. And I, it, I think it enables you a way of, of yes. approaching death and the, the end of the body and, and, fear and pain in, in such a different way. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. I think this is, this is just coming to me as I say it. I think shame and fear are mirror images. Shame is what you feel about the past and fear is what you feel about the future. And neither of those is something I feel a lot of. Um, I get nervous and I get, Mm. you know, boy, that would probably have been a better thing for me not to have done. But neither shame nor fear drives my life a lot right now. You know, I, I think a question I have, I, I'm working on my own memoir right now, and I've been working on it for fucking like seven years. They're hard. And, They're really know, hard. And I realized like at one point that, oh, I was experiencing sex work as a patron and I had to do it for myself. So that became okay. a four-year journey before I got to the point where I was like, I've experienced a lot. Now I need to write about it again. Those <laughs> 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 weird cycles. But um the amount of healing it's enabled, but the amount that I still feel like I have left to do, I, what I, what I constantly wonder is like, I consider this like my, at least my part-time job to be working on my own healing so that like the book is something that's useful for other people. But most people don't have that amount of time. (laughs) No, they do not. How do you, Um, yeah, have you thought about this? Like, how do how do people like uncover things the way that you're able to uncover them because you've been granted well, let's, opportunity? Let's start with the fact that I'm substantially older than you. Yeah. So I've had a lot more time to be yeah. doing these things, uh, and I did do an MFA program for two years, which was very intensive mm-hmm. uh, inner and outer work. Uh, the kind of intimacy you get among strangers in a a creative nonfiction class oh, yeah. is the weirdest kind of intimacy you can imagine because these are people with whom you have nothing in common, but you know what it felt like when their mom hit them the first time. Mm. Uh, it's, it's it's like being a therapist to a whole room full of people and then being a therapist. It's very strange. Uh, so yeah, uh, that kind of intensive work where I'm going with this is that that kind of fearfulness that you feel when you're doing that kind of deep work can be really addictive. Mm. I'm at the point now where if a, if a book or a story or an essay doesn't scare me to write, then it's hard for me to stick, stick with it. It's yeah. I'm really hooked on that edginess. Back when I was teaching classes, I taught classes for the specific desire to be terrified, mm. uh, put myself in front of an audience and do something scary because I got really into it. And interestingly, I'm not interested in fear in my scenes. I don't do the kinds of scenes that make people frightened mm. because they have a tendency to frighten me. And I, it's not erotic to me to be frightened. It's just essential. That's interesting. So, I mean, it's it's different than your play is what it sounds like. But, yeah. it, but leaning into what scares you is what's allowed you to be this. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm thinking the takeaway for a lot of people who are, are not going to write their memoir, that's not them, is 
like maybe it's just learning to lean into what scares you because that that is where the healing is that's the shadow work right there's uh i don't know if you watched crazy ex-girlfriend when it was on but there was a song about doing what scares you in which the singer invites people to go walk up to that wild bear over there and do other ridiculously dangerous things in order to confront what scares you so i want to be a little cautious about putting that out there i do not want anybody to get hurt on my dime Um, but if if it is something that you're avoiding doing that you would like to do but you don't want to do because it's frightening think about where that fear is coming from and what the flip side of it might be, what you might, might be able to gain by doing that. Um, and it might turn out to be worth it. It might not. Mm-hmm. I, I'm lucky enough to have been raised by non-abusive parents and in a very gentle, you know, I, I had a, a pretty swell upbringing compared mm-hmm. to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so that enables me to take greater risks than people who have had legitimate cause to be terrified yeah. because they're being brought up in an environment with people who they can't trust. Because I have that enormous privilege, I don't have to deal with that as much. But that does put me in a position to talk about things that other people who are not so privileged might not be able to get to. Yeah, that's a great call out for sure. I mean, when you're approaching when you're approaching things you're scared of, like, do you have support? Do yeah. you know how to take care of yourself? And for various people, that that answer is very, very different. Yes. Yeah. If, if, if terror is a trigger for you, then don't go there. Yes. <laughs> at least not until you feel like you can confront that yeah. uh, without utterly destroying your, your sense of self. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> totally different topic or it's like, well, maybe we'll see. There is a scene that I love from the book where you talk about a scene that you were in, um, in your forties where the, I think it's the pain of the scene. You talk about coming unstuck in time. Yes. And yeah. So can you talk about that? What that means to you? Well, being unstuck in time is kind of a, one of the core themes of the book. And I relate it back to, you know, Billy Pilgrim in, in Slaughterhouse-Five, who was the first person that I was aware of to talk about being unstuck in time. But the thing is that what our brains and bodies are for is to move us through space and time. That's why we have them. And once you leave your body, which I've done a little bit for, a, a you know, a millisecond at a time, and once you leave your brain, then you're not unstuck in time anymore. You're mm-hmm. not stuck in time anymore. Mm-hmm. And you move on to something that because right now you have a brain and body, you can't begin to conceive. And, you know, it's a fun little mental exercise to try to figure out what existence would be like without space or time. And I unfold new layers of that every time I explore it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's there. And I'm pretty sure it is, as opposed to this little, you know, 60 or 80 or 100 year interlude in the brain and the body. I'm pretty sure it's what's real. And this was a nice vacation. In the book, I compare it to, you know, putting on a nice sundress for the resort you're spending your 60 or 80 or 100 years in. And then when you go home, you're done with that and you move on back into your real life. Um, But of course, 
in talking about that, I'm also referencing time. When you start talking about space and time, you have to recognize that part of you is always in outside space, outside time, because it's outside space and outside time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is really complicated stuff, really difficult to talk about. But there it is. It's it's my thing that I like to think about. You had an experience with the future you, which is now the current you. Now me, yes. <laughs> so knowing that there's this flexibility of how you can experience space and time and that you've had now 20 years of living with that flexibility, how do you, how do you approach the future differently because of that? One thing I know is that I will, I hope, be able to follow in my father's footsteps in terms of deciding to check out under my own agency and not because my body is disintegrated to the point where I can't stay in it anymore. Um, And of course, not all of us get that chance because sometimes the body disintegrates too fast for us to make that decision. But I hope mine will. Um, And I'm recognizing that I work pretty hard these days at staying as healthy as I can at my age. And I have to recognize that all that work will eventually stop working and that the body will lose its abilities one after another. Um, And so trying to, it's not an easy thing for me to think about. You know, I have a lot of values about being competent and being strong you know, being in my body and partly being married to my spouse, who is chronologically only a few years older than me, but medically a lot older than me uh, and looking at how he's managing it. So there's a certain amount of anticipatory grieving about what that will be like when I can't do the things I like to do anymore, which is made easier by the recognition that the time will come when I can say, nope, done. This isn't fun. I'm going away. But when I try to imagine myself when I can't drive, when I can't work out, when I can't, oh, what are the other things I like to do? Can't travel, can't cook. I don't know what that's going to be like. Mm. I don't think I'm going to like it, which is why I'm already making advanced plans Mm. for how I will be. On the other hand, my next door neighbor, who I think I mentioned briefly in passing, turned 102 this year. His wife told me he got his first set of dentures at 101, which still blows my little mind. And just a couple of weeks ago, he took a fall and broke a hip and is now in rehab. And from what I'm hearing, there's a fair chance he'll make it back home again, which I didn't think he would. Wow. And that man's half again my age. So who knows what my future will be? I do try to do the things that will help to make sure that my future is as healthy as it can be. On the other hand, I have a sweet tooth like you wouldn't believe, and I hate to exercise. So (laughs) my willingness to do those things is not as intense as I wish it were, but I try. I think a lot about the scenes you wrote about, about your father's death. And I think just because I've never known somebody who's, who's taken that option and, you know, living in the Midwest, it's just, it's not an option. Yeah. So I, I'm really appreciative that you wrote about it and contemplated it in a way that was both, I mean, obviously deeply personal, but allowed so many of us to experience it in a way that we wouldn't 
we haven't had access to yet. Yeah, I've talked to a couple of publishers about editing an anthology of people writing first person stories about mm -hmm. helping someone with an assisted suicide. And so far, I haven't found anybody who's interested, but I haven't been pushing it really hard either. So maybe sometime. Sure. At my event last week, someone gave me contact info for the uh, the largest death doula training organization in the U.S., which apparently does have a publishing arm. So I may approach oh, them at yeah. some point, but first I've got to get these other two books with Dossie out of my hair. Um, and Dossie um, has, she broke an elbow oh, earlier this year. Um, and that was just healing when she stepped on a step that gave out under her on her patio and she fell and broke her other hand. And she's been getting that healed and then she fell and broke the first elbow again. Oh no. So, yeah, no, that's the future that I have to contemplate. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I am assured that I have enough bone density to give some to her if they had the tech, but they don't and hers is not great. But something will catch up with me. My mm. eyes, my brain, my muscles, my bones, something. And I will lose abilities. I've already, my hands are bad, so I don't knit anymore. And I have to be careful about uh, not doing too much cooking because that will harm them, well, not harm them, but make them very sore. Mm -hmm. And I'm having surgery on them in a few weeks and all that. So I'm already seeing some abilities start to slide mm -hmm. and there'll be more. There just will. That's, that's aging. And I try to look at what I'm given at the same time as something is taken away. And there's usually something, I think I read a little bit about that in the book. Um, yeah. So, so that I don't go into a grief spiral about these abilities as they fade. I try to look at what the years have brought me, mm -hmm. which is all this experience that I've written about and all these amazing people that I wouldn't have known otherwise and hope that the balance continues to be pretty even. Mm -hmm. To end you, um, you talked about you've got a couple of projects coming up with Dossie. Do you want to share anything about them? Or what we should look well, for? Well, they're they're not in contract yet, but it looks pretty sure. Excuse me, that we will be doing a companion workbook to go with the Ethical Slut because our publisher mm -hmm. wants one, and um, also a second edition of Radical Ecstasy. Wow! So those are those are both under negotiation. Uh, Radical Ecstasy, especially, we want to get done before Dossie can't work at a computer anymore because uh, she's really excited about updating the book. And I want her to be able to do that. The, the companions thing, I can write that myself. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, although she will of course have, and has had much input into it, but yeah, life goes on. Plus I'm, I'm working still on building my work as an illustrator, which is a fairly new part of my life. I did some illustrations in notes of an aging pervert. And in my last couple of books, I have illustrations and, I just had my first show of a series of drawings I call truth tellers about people back through the history of queerness and sexuality who I see as having told their own truth and been harmed by ha having done so. Speaking their own truth in spite of the consequences, I guess would be a good thing to say about that. So that's hanging right now at our local gay bar, and I will look for other places to hang it after this is done. Nice. That's awesome. Are are any of those online? I posted some of them on my Facebook page, but if you want a couple to put up next to the um, podcast when it goes up or something, I would be happy to send my favorites along. I love that. That's great. And yeah, the, the illustrations added so much to the book. And I think as part of what I was thinking about, about this idea of having a public body, and of course you have other people's bodies in there, but there's, you know, there's not 
a lot. I don't feel like I've seen as many illustrations of of aging bodies in um, like mischievous and playful ways. You know. Yes. Yeah. There's a, there's a photo I have waiting. I, I've tried to draw it a couple times and not been satisfied with the outcome. But year year before last, when I was at Folsom, I walked past this very elderly guy who was stumping along with his walker, mm. stark naked, just not a stitch on him. He had to be well into his 80s, possibly older than that. Mm-hmm. And so I asked if he, I could take his picture and he he said I could. Yeah. And while, while I was doing so, we were chatting and he says, you know, at this place, they don't care if you wear any clothes or not. He leaned in closer and said, they don't even care if you play with yourself a little. <laughs> just so fucking dear. And I loved him. Oh. And so I want to give him a, a, a picture or uh, yeah, not give it to him because I didn't get his contact info, but I want there to be a record of this man because he was just so fucking adorable. I love that. That's great. Okay. So we will, we will have those um, on the, have a couple of those hopefully on the blog um, along with the podcast and yeah, I'll, I'll send them to you on Facebook. Sweet. I appreciate it. Well, once again, thank you. Thank you for joining and thank you for talking about this. I think it's, you know, I this is I haven't read your other two memoirs. I've read I've read parts of Radical Radical Ecstasy, and so I feel like I've I've seen so much of this journey. But there's there's a lot to be had. There's a lot more. Well, yeah. my my the publisher uh, Unbound Edition, who did um, Notes of an Aging Pervert, wants to reissue the other two memoirs and do a box set, which makes me happier than I can possibly begin oh, to tell you. Sure. Have a box set, wouldn't that be? freaking awesome yeah. so you know we'll see we yeah, we both have a lot else going on so we haven't gotten around to moving on that yet but we will great all right well we will we will end there and i'll make sure to get all the links so people can check it out but... awesome okay thank you very much yeah